Philippians 2 and verse 5, again, this passage of Scripture, which has been referred to, as I've mentioned many times now, the Carmen Christi, or the hymn to Christ, or hymn of Christ. And, of course, Paul is uh, giving praise to the Lord as well as exhortation to the church concerning uh, the example of Christ set before them, but, of course, also in relation to what God has done through Christ in this example that is set before us in this passage of Scripture. And so we'll begin our reading again in verse 5 this morning. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, once again, we just want to thank you for your faithfulness and your grace and mercy in Christ. May you use your word in each of our hearts this morning. As I know, you have purposed to conform all of us who have been brought to redemption in Christ to the image of your dear Son. So, Father, may we be pliable in your hand, and may we be submissive, recognizing the very humility of our Lord Jesus Christ, and as well, you now have exalted him. He is above all, before all. And, Lord, may he be truly before all in our own lives as we live each day. So may we recognize and understand the exhortation that is before us this morning, and may we give ourselves to the truth of your word, not only in understanding, but in living out the truth of your word as it is given to us this day. We pray this to your glory and to your honor in Christ's precious name. Amen. Thank you and be seated. Last week we began our study, I've mentioned this many times, but we began our study actually last week of verses 5 through 11, which as I mentioned to you is this hymn to Christ. And as I previously stated, Christ not only has set the example for us and how we are to consider ourselves and others, but more importantly, He is God's provision for us in that it is in Christ and through Christ alone that we are enabled to live in humility and in submission to the Father through the presence of His Spirit and His strength. And last week I pointed out the importance of this hymn to Christ and this passage of Scripture in that the more that we reflect upon the Lord Jesus, the more we acknowledge and understand His humility and His sacrifice to the Father, the more adoration we will personally have for Him. And it is when we reflect upon the truth of who He is, as He's been declared and revealed in His Word, and what He has done for us, that we begin to truly recognize His worth. When we consider not only what the Lord Jesus Christ has done, or what God the Father has done in the person of Christ, but also when we consider who Christ is, what God has done through him, in view of who we are, then we begin to truly have an appreciation for this work of redemption, for all the elements of this work of redemption. As we continue to know Christ, as we continue to grow in the knowledge and faith of our Lord Jesus as he is revealed in his word. Paul began this praise to Christ with the exhortation for us to have the same mind or to possess the same attitude as did Jesus. Now, if you go back a few verses prior, if you look actually in chapter 2, Paul says 
in verse 2. Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded. Now, we spent some time a few weeks back dealing with this statement. He goes on to say, for instance, if you read further in the verse, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. So here he's saying that we have the same love, and that love, of course, is the love of, of God in Christ, and then being of one accord, that, of course, there not be this contention and strife, but that we be in unity. And then the same mind, when he says the same mind in the latter part of that verse, it literally is referring to that we are living out the same purpose, that we have the same purpose. And so when he says like-minded, again, what we often think of when we read that word like-minded or having the same mind, we often think, or most, I believe, often think that Paul or whoever the writer is in, in the epistle is saying, whichever epistle that may be, that is, is saying that we are to agree with one another. But that is not at all what is being stated here. Again, I showed you clearly throughout multiple passages of Scripture the common thread concerning like-mindedness. And when, when the Scriptures refer to like-mindedness, we find multiple times that it is referencing specifically how we view ourselves and how we view others. And that's the context, and it is the same context in this passage when Paul says, be like-minded, because remember, he is leading us up to verse 5, where he's saying, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So what Paul is saying is, let this same attitude be in you that was in our Lord Jesus Christ. And what is that attitude? Well, then he gets into the humility and so on and so forth. And so he is saying that we are to prefer others before ourselves. Multiple times we find that to be uh, in correlation to like-mindedness. And so again, just to remind you of this truth, don't lose sight of this, when Scripture refers to being like-minded, it is often, or in, in context, it is referring to not simply that we are agreeing about something, but that specifically we all have this attitude and this mindset, all of us individually possess this, that we prefer others before ourselves, that we humble ourselves, and that we tend and care to the needs of others, specifically those of the body of Christ. This is, the, this is the context of which Paul is writing and the other epistles as well. And so we must keep that in the forefront of our minds so that we not lose sight of what like-mindedness is, because again, it's not talking about just simply agreeing with one another as we might would at first think it to be. And so Paul begins this statement or this exhortation by saying, and this praise to Christ, by the exhortation, or with the exhortation, to let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, again, when he says, let this mind be in you, it's not passive, uh, this is not a passive statement, but rather he's saying, this is how it's supposed to be. be, be conscious and attentive to this. And so this mind of Christ is not only given to us through the indwelling Spirit of God, because of course that is true, but we're also told throughout Scripture, as we saw last week, that this mind of Christ is taught to us, and we learn of the mind of Christ. In other words, let me say this, I mean, this just stands to reason, obviously. Whenever you were born again or redeemed, you received the Spirit of God within you. You have new life, spiritual life, and, it, and you're, you're changed. You are, if any man be in Christ, Paul says, right, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And the next statement, all things are of God in verse 18. So we know that it's in Corinthians 5, 17 and 18. So we know all things are of God, that we are given a new mind. We are given the mind of Christ. We are different. We are changed. But how, how foolish we would be to think for one moment that at the moment of our salvation, that at that moment, that that is, that is the pinnacle of what our lives are going to look like concerning following after Christ. No, we are continually growing and maturing, and we are commanded to do so. And so not only is this mind of Christ given to us in the indwelling Spirit of God, which is absolutely true, but also we are taught 
this mind and attitude of Christ as he exemplifies even in this text, but also we are taught by the indwelling spirit who lives within us. And so the indwelling spirit of God is constantly conforming us, sanctifying us, teaching us. And so we learn more so what it means to have this mind of Christ as we learn more of Christ himself. And so this is something that is not only given to us, but as well exemplified and taught to us by the instruction of the scriptures and through the example of Christ himself. And remember that it is the spirit of Christ uh, who is reminding us and giving us discernment of all things that Jesus taught in his ministry and his word as declared in John 14, 21 through 26. So to have the mind of Christ will result in a life lived according to or in like manner to the life of Christ. And to have the mind of Christ is not a self-professed claim, but is a selfless, sacrificial, and submitted life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and His Spirit, using His Word in our lives to continue to sanctify us and conform us to His image, as declared in Romans 8.29. Let me stop this for, let me pause here for just a moment before we move forward, because I want to make a statement. It, 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 is, it is not uncommon for people to self-profess they are Christians. It is not uncommon for someone to say, well, I'm a Christian. Look, and you obviously should not be ashamed of being a follower of Jesus Christ. But hear me, if it requires for you to state that so someone can know it more so than your life exemplifying that, then there's a huge problem. Now, we are to declare the gospel. We are to proclaim the gospel. But even in proclaiming the gospel, that not saying I am a Christian, we're proclaiming Christ is the Savior. And so how many people self-profess to be a Christian yet never proclaim the truth of Christ? And if that is where someone is, then they are in a bad state of affairs, spiritually speaking. Because to be a follower of Christ, remember in the book of Acts, we find that the church or the believers were first called Christians there in Antioch. And we must remember that that was a title given to them by the outsiders looking on, saying, these people remind us of Jesus. That was the whole point. They are people who are like Jesus or following after Jesus. So again, my question would be, why is it so many today are self-professing this rather than it being said about them by the outside, outsider looking on? And so self-profession Christians doesn't mean anything. <laughs> But when other people are saying that about someone, that bears much more weight than someone claiming to be a Christian. And by the way, if someone is truly a follower of Christ, will they not proclaim Jesus Christ? It's not going to be they're going to be proclaiming who they are, what they are, as much as they are going to be be proclaiming who Christ is. Because that's what matters. Don't lose sight of that. It's very important to remember that. So God has given us his spirit. He has renewed our mind. He is giving us the mind of Christ. And we are commanded to let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Last week, I concluded our study by referring to the verses immediately following Paul's hymn to Christ in Philippians 2, 12, and 13. So immediately following what we just read a moment ago, and God has highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name, how that we are to have this mind of Christ. He humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Then verse 12, Wherefore, my beloved, for this reason, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So this is important because now Paul is saying, looking at the example of Christ, having this exhortation to allow this mind or let this mind or be attentive and and intentional concerning the attitude of Christ being lived out through your life, he then says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And I know I've said this to you many times, but let me say just for clarification again and to remind you, 
that the prepositions here are important. When Paul says work out, he does not say work on your salvation. He does not say work for your salvation. He does not say work towards your salvation. He says work out your salvation. So this is what God has worked in is now being lived out. And that's intentional here. He's saying obey as you've obeyed, not in my presence only, he says, but also in my absence. So he's saying this is an intentional, purposeful act to be intentional and purposeful as a believer to work out that which God has worked in. Has he given us his mind? Has God given us the mind of Christ? Yes, work out that mind. That's what he's saying. We've got, we've received this from God through his spirit. Now live that out, flesh that out, work that out. So while Paul begins this hymn with an exhortation, as we've clearly seen, to submit to the mindset of Christ, the attitude of Christ, in the following three verses, verses six through eight, which we referenced, Paul now explains the mindset of our Lord Jesus by emphasizing the humility of Christ to which Paul exhorts the Philippian church to exemplify towards one another. Now remember, when he's showing us what Jesus has done, we must remember he humbled himself to the glory of God in submission to the Father's will and ultimately that God's glory would be revealed and accomplished through his sacrifice. But who were the or who is it that is the object of this humility? Why did he do this? Oh, it's for the glory of God. It, it is for um it, it is in submission to the will of God, but it's on our behalf that he has done this. We are the recipients of the result of the humility of Christ and what he has done. And so as we have received of Christ in such humility, so we are to therefore now live out the same humility of that which we have received as demonstrated in Christ Jesus. So, uh, we need to, to again, re- remember this in understanding Paul's exhortation to have this attitude of Christ that we first have already received of Christ, and now we are to live out this truth. Now, before we delve into the, the meat of Paul's hymn to Christ within verses 6 through 8 specifically, I, I believe it's important to revisit the theme of this epistle so that we do not lose sight of how this portion of the epistle has its place in accomplishing the purpose for which Paul has written the, the entire letter. As I pointed out in the overview of this epistle, the overall theme of Paul's letter to the Philippians is the excellency of the gospel or the excellency of Jesus Christ. And we see this, uh, this, this stated, in a sense, in, in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. Now, again, the verb approve means to examine or to test. And the noun excellent in this passage, it means to be worth more than. And so the use of the word has the implication that something is of considerable value, having certain distinctive characteristics. Or as we have seen, when he speaks of the things that are excellent, he is literally saying that these things are superior So they are superior, but then the question could be asked, superior to what? Well, in this account, they're superior to all other things. So Christ is excellent, and we are to prove things that are excellent. In other words, Paul is showing us in this epistle, he is charging the Philippian believers that they are to acknowledge that which is superior, that they are to live by the things that are superior. And then he gives the example of Christ where he did that. What what Christ thought was more superior than even dwelling eternally 
in the heavens with the Father was to submit himself to the will and purpose of the Father, which was excellent, and it brought glory unto the Father. And then Paul, as, as you know, he says that I may know Christ, right? Philippians 3.10. He goes on to say that uh, in, in this epistle that he counts all things but loss for the excellency, for the superiority of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Again, knowledge not meaning that he is coming to salvation. No, knowledge since salvation. So he's saying that it is, I, I, I count all things, everything, even that which I once thought gain, which I once prized, which I once put value on. He says, I, I consider all of that as nothing. Because to know Christ, to continue to know him, to grow in Jesus and the knowledge of Jesus is superior to everything else. And that's exactly what Paul is stating. So throughout this epistle, we see that the, we are to, as the Philippian believers, we as well, are to acknowledge, we are to understand, we are to embrace, we are to live by and unto that which is superior, not that which is inferior. And by the way, we will see even in this text that and, and that which follows, that it is superior for us to live in humility than to live in pride. <laughs> it is superior for us to prefer others above ourselves. And Christ has set, that, has set that example, of course. And so Paul desired for the Philippian believers to recognize and regard the things which are proven to be excellent, of considerable value or distinctive, or that which is superior. And in Philippians 2, 5-11, Paul explains just how distinctive the character of Jesus Christ is, and, and that's what we're looking at this morning, of course. Now, the excellency or superiority of Jesus is clearly displayed throughout this epistle, and I want to give you, again, a brief overview of this book, briefly, just pointing out these truths so that you can see them yourself. Um, in, in chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, we see the excellency of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, 19 through 30, we see the excellency of salvation in Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, 1 through 13, we see the excellency of the person and work of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, 14 through 18, the excellency of following Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, uh, 1 through, I'm sorry, chapter 2, 19 through 30, the excellency of the fellowship through Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, 1 through 16, the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, 17 through 21, the excellency of the hope we have in Jesus Christ, the confidence we have in him. Chapter 4, 1 through 7, the excellency of the peace of God through Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, 18 through 14, the excellency of contentment in Jesus Christ. And chapter 4, 15 through 23, the excellency of God's provision in Jesus Christ as a whole. So what you find is this, that the gospel is superior, salvation is superior, the person of Christ is superior in his work, the following after Christ is superior, fellowship in and through Christ is superior, knowledge of Jesus Christ is superior, Hope, the confidence we have in Christ, is superior. The peace of God in Jesus Christ is superior. The contentment we have in Jesus Christ is superior. And the provision of God in Jesus Christ is superior. So you have the excellency of who Christ is. And Paul is pointing that out and emphasizing this truth throughout this epistle. We can approve, we can testify, as Paul exhorts the Philippians, by the examination and experience that Jesus Christ is excellent, that he is distinctively superior in comparison to all other things. And Paul is pounding out this truth. Nothing can compare to what it is to know and experience the uniqueness and superiority of salvation in Jesus Christ, following Jesus Christ, hope because of Christ, peace through God, with God because of Christ, contentment in all things because of Jesus Christ, and God provision and then through Jesus Christ. So Jesus is exalted above all, as he will go on to say, of course, in this verses 9 uh, and following, he talks about that God has highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name. Why is all of that? He is superior. He is more excellent. 
and Paul is acknowledging that and explaining that in this passage. So with these truths in mind, let's consider Paul's explanation of the excellency of Jesus in his mind to, we which, who, to all of us who are called to submission as was Christ. Verses 6 through 8, let's read them again. Who, being in the form of God, of course Jesus, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So let's begin by considering verses 6 and, six and 7, where we, are, where we see the excellency of the person of Jesus, the person himself. Who being in the form of God, Jesus being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Paul here points out the exceptionality of this example set by Jesus by pointing us to the excellence or superiority of not only the example, but also the excellence of the one who has set the example. Now, this is really important. As is the case with most things relating to Christianity, there is a paradox involved within this verse. And let me explain or clarify. While in most instances, such an explanation of the superiority of the one setting the example would isolate that individual from the others. In other words, if we were saying, you know, obviously, as the Scripture does here, that Jesus is the very Son of God. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So we're looking at him and going, wow, I mean, who else can say that? No one can. So that in itself sets him apart from all others. Hence, he is excellent. He is superior. But notice the paradox. Rather than that isolating him from us, it is through this very example and because of who he is that through this example, through this work, because he is who he is, that in his humility, rather than this isolating him as though we're looking at him going, well, that totally separates us from him. It was through this work that we are brought into unity with him and with the Father. So this is somewhat of a paradox in a sense, because again, by Paul talking about how wonderful Jesus is, we can sit back and go, oh yeah, well, we're not that. Of course we're not that. But it's through the person of Christ that he was able, because of who he is, he was able to accomplish what he has, that now we can be joined in a relationship through him to the Father. And it's only by this means and by the reality of who he is that this could be accomplished. So it's through this example itself that Paul is giving that Christ has identified and related to all others or all of humanity. So it's through the example provided in this text that this, the superiority of Jesus is both emphasized while at the same time it is through such an example that he has become relatable to us. Because it's through him coming in the flesh. Notice, who? Jesus being in the form of God. Colossians, Paul goes on to explain concerning the preeminence of Christ, how that he is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is God in the flesh. He says, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So here's this example. Look at, the, look at the excellence of this example. Here you have God in the flesh, who Jesus never for one moment didn't know who he was. He knew he is God in the flesh. And he knew that he was the fullness of the Godhead bodily. 
And yet, not knowing that it's not robbery to be considered equal with God. Remember, in fact, Jesus himself declares this in his earthly ministry, if you recall. When he says to the Pharisees and others, he says, I and the Father are one. He thought a robber to be equal with God because he is God. But nonetheless, made himself of no reputation. You know, we think of the humility of Christ, and one thing we often think of is just simply how that, well, he came uh, born and laid in a manger, you know, what humble beginnings, and how true that is. I mean, he came humbly into the world without a doubt. But then we think about how that, you know, he, he humbled himself unto death, which is, of course, of the utmost importance as the Scriptures declared here. But have we forgotten as well the humility of Christ throughout his earthly ministry even? He who is the Lord of all the universe humbled himself to experience what it is to live in this flesh, in the likeness of man, in the likeness of sinful flesh even. And he came in this form experiencing the same things we experience. Jesus wept. Jesus knew what it was to have grief. He knew what it was to have sorrow. He knew what it was to feel and experience pain. He understood these things. But notice, one of the, one of the, the, the highlights of the humility of Christ throughout his earthly ministry is when you consider how the people continually rejected him and he humbly stayed the course, humbly submitted himself to the will of the Father, humbly endured all the mocking, not only at the time of his death, but throughout his ministry where they ridiculed him they accused him they falsely accused him obviously and yet rather than destroying them all he humbly submitted to the will of the father in offering himself we see this truth of jesus being god and yet identifying with man by becoming flesh Emphasized throughout the scriptures in John 1, 1 through 4 and then verse 14. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Verse 14, and this, the word, this word became flesh, it was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So here you see the deity of Jesus and the eternality of Jesus. He was with God the Father throughout all eternity and yet was made flesh. He was made into flesh. Not that the beginning of Jesus began in his earthly flesh. Of course not. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Galatians 4, 3 through 5. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. Again, you see the deity of Christ. And because of who he is, that this work could even be accomplished. First John 1, 1 through 3. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, we, we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So it's through the example of Jesus who is God becoming flesh that we who were born of the flesh can now have a relationship with God the Father, obviously, because Jesus identified with us through his flesh, through uh, his flesh that remedied the problem of sin. Romans 8, 3 and 4, and I love this passage of Scripture. And we, and we read some of this a little bit early. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh 
and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness, or so that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So what a supreme example here that Jesus would humble himself to become sinful, or become in, come in the likeness of sinful flesh, though he's without sin, to come in this very form of the likeness of sinful flesh. He humbled himself in such a manner so that he might redeem us under the glory of God the Father. Isaiah explained how this example of Jesus was to be demonstrated and how such an example of Jesus would be used to reconcile us to God the Father. In Isaiah 53, quite a lengthy text here, but beginning in verse 4 we read, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before our shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and the rich, with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and was, he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. What a beautiful portrait of Christ. What a beautiful prophecy concerning the person of Christ and his humility. Notice again, Isaiah refers to this humility in the sense that he speaks of how, of course, uh, Christ would come and be rejected, a man of sorrows and so on, and we would stream him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But yet, notice, under the persecution, unjust accusation, unjust torment, unjust suffering, he then opens not his mouth. As a sheep before his shears is dumb. So he says nothing against those who even rail against him. So he says nothing against those who are, who are attempting to murder him, if you will. That is some humility when you're talking about someone who's able to end it all at that moment, should that have been as he would have chosen to do. But of course, he was submitted to the will of the Father, so that was going to be. But notice the humility when he was done wrong. Now, let's look at this as Paul is telling us, okay? Because obviously, we are looking, this is a hymn to Christ. We are looking at the beauty of the excellency of Christ and his tremendous humility. But notice verse 5, let this mind be in you. You know, it, it's, it's easy for us, is it not, to at least present ourselves in a humble manner when people are kind and gracious or loving towards us. But do you see what Paul is exhorting the Philippian church here to do? Let this mind, he who is God, who humbled himself, not only removing himself from society and then dying on our behalf, no, engaged in society that hated him, that mocked him, that ridiculed him, that persecuted him, that 
slew him, knowing God ultimately did that, but at their hands this was accomplished, right? And yet, he's saying, let this mind, let this attitude, let this humility be exemplified through you. In other words, it's not simply, oh, yeah, for those in, we're in fellowship within the church and we should really prefer them above ourselves. Or, oh, yes, when someone is sick in the church, then we should minister. Of course, all that is true. That should be a given. What is being stated here is that whenever we are unjustly treated, whenever we are unfairly treated, whenever we are ridiculed or mocked for righteousness' sake, that we are to remain humble as Christ. Was humble. What a charge. You know, I think that we, and I, we are guilty of this. I didn't say you, um, but notice we include you, right? We are guilty of this in that we really may not have such a problem in preferring others before ourselves to some degree whenever the people we are talking about are our friends or people we have shared fellowship with and people that have, have reached out to us whenever we're in a situation of needing assistance or help or, or you know, caring for them as, as we have been cared for by them. But what about when it's somebody who treats you unjustly? I, I confess to you. I will not hesitate to confess to you that that is a difficult thing to submit to. Because everything within us, think of it like this for a moment. If this is obviously extremely, an extreme hypothetical statement, but think of it like this. If you were in the place of the Lord Jesus in which you could have been as he was, in that you had all power at your disposal, and people treated you unjustly, how would you respond? I would venture to say it probably wouldn't be in the same manner Christ did. But yet, look at what Paul is saying. Let this mind be in you. Let this attitude be in you. The humility present because why? Because, oh, well, if we're humble, then it really makes us look good. No, this is God's purpose and will. Remember what the Scriptures teach us plainly as followers of Christ, that all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. We will be opposed. There will be opposition present. We understand that we are to follow in the steps of Christ. And remember in the previous chapter, it, it, don't forget this. Because, see, we, you, may, you may lose sight of the connection between chapters 1 and 2 here, because if you remember Paul is speaking about in the previous chapter, in verse 29, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. The context here is that there is suffering that is being imposed upon the Philippian believers. And then he's going on to say, Oh, prefer one another, love one another, humble yourselves, and let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. So let us consider ourselves now to look back at praise to he who is our, our Savior and our Lord. This hymn to Christ, this hymn of praise unto him. Let us step back considering all of this and let us think of the beauty and the superiority and the excellency of his person. Because he did as none other would have done had they been in his position. 
does that not cause us to look on him in adoration? When we consider the fact that he has done as none other would have done, could they have done as he could have done? I, I, I'll just pause and say this at this point. The Lord Jesus Christ is beautiful in every aspect, in his entire person. And we see that as we understand what Paul is actually teaching throughout this, this epistle in this portion. Second, let's consider the excellency of the submission of Jesus. We see his person. He is God in the flesh. This is who he is. But now look at the beauty of the submission. Verse 8, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Such submission and humility has never been demonstrated nor personified in any other person other than Christ. Several weeks ago during one of our studies in the epistle of Jude, um, on Wednesday evening, I mentioned a statement allegedly made by D.L. Moody, and it's reported that when referring to a conversation between himself and the British revivalist by the name of Henry Varley, Moody said, The world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. By God's help, I aim to be that man. And I said to you, at that time, if truth be told, the world has seen exactly what it looks like for a man to be completely consecrated to God the Father. And this consecration of a life and absolute submission to God the Father was perfectly demonstrated in the life and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. So while I appreciate the quote that was made by Moody in reference to some human being that if we would only be totally submitted and, and consecrated unto God, then oh, who knows what God would do or how he would work. But I say to you, we see exactly what that looks like in the person of Christ. He was completely, totally submitted and consecrated unto the purpose and person of God the Father. So as I have previously mentioned, death by the cross was not only the most horrific means of torture, in previous studies we've discussed this, but also considered to be the curse, to be cursed of God, those who were on the cross. Paul states this in Galatians. Notice Galatians 3.13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Now, if you just read that alone, you can say, oh, well, that's saying, you know, that it would be horrible for those who die on the, on the cross, and that would just be something that would consider, somebody would look and go, oh, that's a, that condemned man, what a curse it would be. But actually, this quote in Galatians 3.13 is taken from the book of Deuteronomy. Notice Paul said, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And in Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23, listen to what actually the scripture says. If a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he be to be, and, and he be to be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree. So if this is the case, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt lay in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God. That thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. So here in Deuteronomy we're being told that the curse... Paul references in Galatians, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. From the Old Testament, the quote is being made, which clearly declares that the one who hangs on a tree is considered worthy of death and cursed of God. So this curse that is associated with the cross is in relation to being cursed of God himself. And this curse was one in which the Lord was judging the sin of the individual. And what's more, the curse of the cross of Christ was in relation to Jesus taking on the sin of the world. 
So while we look at the superiority of the person of Jesus, how much more so do we stand in adoration of who he is when we consider the superiority of his humility and his submission in taking on the curse of God upon himself, that curse that would have been and was upon sin that he took upon himself. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, I, I love this passage of Scripture, and I reference it many times, but we're told, For he, the Father, hath made him the Son to be sin for us the sinner, who knew he, the Son, knew no sin, that we, the sinner, might be made the righteousness of God in him, the Son. What a profound statement. For he, God the Father, has judged, has treated the righteous Son of God as though he were the sinner. Again, I've said to you many times, and and what a again, as we reflect in, in praise to Christ our Redeemer, would we not stand in adoration of his person and his work when we consider this truth? That the entirety of the wrath of God that would have been mine now as one who is a believer in Jesus Christ has been exhausted upon the person of Jesus Christ. Here's what that means. While there is an entire world of, who live in unbelief at this present moment, the wrath of God, as Romans 2, 5 says, is abiding upon them. They are treasuring up the wrath of God to be revealed in the righteous day of judgment. Yet, for we who are believers in Jesus Christ, there is not one iota of God's wrath in reservation for us. It's exhausted upon His Son. How can we not, as Paul, how could we not join together? How could we not see the necessity and the beauty of the person and the work, the superiority of the person and superiority of the work of Jesus Christ? How could we not join them with Paul and say, how could we be quiet? How could we be silent and, and not give praise to He who has done such a work? And you say, well, I do. I thank God for this. I, I praise God for this. But, but notice what Paul is, is connecting this with. Okay, so, so you, you agree that Christ is superior. You agree that his work is superior. Well, he's saying if all of these things be true, let's go back to verse 1 of this chapter. If, notice what he's saying, if or since there is consolation in Christ, since there is comfort of his love, since there is fellowship of and in his spirit, since there is bowels and mercies, this, this affection and passion and mercy that we've received and experienced, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love. So if all of this is true, and we acknowledge the superiority of the love of God in Christ, the mercy of God in Christ, the fellowship of God in Christ, the God's outpouring of his wrath upon Christ on our behalf, if we recognize all of these things, then, verse 5, let this mind be in you. So in other words, what is the greatest expression of genuine praise, of genuine worship, of genuine thanksgiving to this Savior who has done this on our behalf unto the glory of God the Father. Well, the greatest demonstration of our 
thanksgiving, adoration, and praise is that we submit ourselves to the Father's purpose and instruction and will as did he. Let this mind be in you. And hence in verse 12 and 13, work out. You see what Paul is saying? He's sandwiching all this together. Saying, okay, so you, you praise the Lord. You think God is worth, Christ is worthy. You, you see him exalted as he is exalted. Well, then if that's true, then let the proof of your adoration, let the genuineness of your, your appreciation and thanksgiving and love for God be demonstrated through your life. Not just something said through your lips. Never has the world seen such submission as that which was seen in our Lord Jesus Christ. This submission cannot be matched, nor can it be measured with anything else. He is the only one who was sinless, and his submission is superior and excellent. His submission is beyond that of any other. It is for this reason, and, and one reason only. It is because He, our Lord Jesus Himself, is superior. In other words, as we consider what Paul is saying concerning the person of Christ and the work of Christ, let us remember how these two join together. There is none other who could do that which He has done. And as we consider what He has truly done, and we see His humility, we see His person. Remember something. I appreciate the fact that God has given me mercy. But when I consider who he is, he is just and he is holy. And he owes no man anything that is good. And then I consider myself to be what I am, understanding the very depths of my own sinful nature, to some degree at least understanding that. I more so am appreciative for who he is and what he has done. And I'm more so appreciative for what he has done in light of who he is and the contrast of who I am. So should we not, as Paul, join in a hymn to Christ, in praise to Christ for who he is and what he has done and what he has done in light of who he is?